Welcome to KUOW's Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this extra episode, the first hundred days of the Donald Trump era has come and gone. There's been plenty to fathom through 24-7 reporting and frequent tweets, but if you're ready to take a deep breath and consider the big picture, here's your chance. Your guide will be journalist Anthony Zerker, a senior North America reporter for BBC News. He spent the last two years covering the race for president, his experience explaining U.S. politics to Brits and the wider world provides a useful vantage point for us here in the States. And as always, the audience in Seattle had thoughtful questions to expand the conversation. Anthony Zerker was interviewed by KUOW reporter Amy Radel on April 27th at the Russell Investment Center in Seattle. The event was hosted by the World Affairs Council. Thanks to Sonia Harris for our recording. Thank you for joining us. I'm Jackie Miller, President and CEO of the World Affairs Council. Uh, a couple of quick thank yous tonight before we get started. Um, thanks, first of all, to Russell Investments for gener generously hosting us in their space again. Uh, Russell Investments is one of my favorite members, and I don't just say that because John David Larson of Russell Investments is right there, and they have the terrific view. Um, and Jean David even Jean David even managed to like part the gray dreary, and the, we saw the sun for a little bit. So you can really enjoy these spectacular views. Um, but uh, Russell Investments also gave us a lot of Jean David's time over the last two years. He just stepped down as our board chair, and uh, he was a terrific board chair. Brought me here to Seattle. Um, so many reasons that we like Russell Investments. We are also really pleased to be partnering with KUOW for tonight's event. Um, we know there's a lot of interest in what's going on, um, and we're pleased to be uh, here to help talk about this important metric or this not important metric, depending on um, whose tweets and what day of the week it is. Um, maybe we'll get into that. Um, for non-members here, or I should say non-members of the council, because I know we have a lot of KUOW members here, um, we're pleased to have you join us tonight. The World Affairs Council's goal is to raise global IQ in Seattle. And we do that by hosting events like this, debates, discussions, um, and dialogue on pressing global issues. We are nonpartisan, nonprofit, so it's a safe space to come and have a discussion um, on these issues that there are a lot of questions about. Um, we also work with K-12, K-12 students and educators to make sure that our children's classrooms are global classrooms and that Seattle, greater Seattle, school students are poised to become global citizens. And we also bring about 800 international visitors a year through the city from all over the world, uh, working very closely with the State Department on international exchange programs, which we think are fundamental to U.S. foreign policy. Um, and we have a whole, I was going to say army of citizen diplomats, but that doesn't quite sound right. Uh, <laughs> we have a dedicated core of citizen diplomats who open their homes, their businesses, their communities to help these international visitors get a better understanding about U.S., about the U.S., U.S. people, U.S. interests, U.S. policy. And now I'd like to ask Sarah Freeman to come up if you can uh, introduce Amy and we'll get started uh, and hopefully get smarter in about an hour and a half here. Thanks, Sarah. On behalf of KUOW Public Radio, I'd like to welcome you all here tonight. 
Um, and I'd like to extend a special welcome to our KUOW Evergreen members who are here. I recognize a couple of you in the crowd. Um, Evergreen members donate to our station on an ongoing base, monthly basis. Um, and they are a group of some of our most engaged and civically minded donors. And we're so grateful for your support and that you're here tonight to share this evening with us. We are also well, um, excited for the opportunity to partner with both the World Affairs Council and the BBC um, to bring you this timely discussion of American politics. At KUOW, we really see our role as being a facilitator for these types of discussions, inviting the community in to participate in journalism by sharing ideas, asking questions, and offering multiple points of view. Now please let me introduce um, KUOW's Amy Radel. Amy has been a public radio reporter since 1997, covering mainly the areas of politics and government. Amy first started as a reporter at Minnesota Public Radio, before reporting for four years from Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, and then finally joining us at KUOW in 2005. Since starting at KUOW, Amy, Amy has contributed with stories on a wide range of important political topics, such as um, the Washington Supreme Court cases, Trump's travel ban, obviously, and the rise of activism here in Seattle. Please join me in welcoming Amy Radel. <laughs> I'm so excited to get to talk with you and also to get to ask some questions to Anthony Zerker. Anthony is a Texan. He explains US politics to Brits, UK politics to Americans, and Canadian politics to everyone. <laughs> And over the course of his career, he's covered the US Supreme Court, Congress, the technology sector, Texas state politics, and most recently, the presidential campaign and the first 100 days. So we're not actually to the 100th day. That's Saturday. So I was wondering, he wrote a great roundup of uh, kind of a President Trump report card. Uh, but are you going to have to add to that? Because it's only Thursday. <laughs> I know. Uh, we could have a health care vote. I mean, we did it's impossible to keep track of Donald Trump on a day-to-day -day basis because so much changes. Uh, I will go into work not knowing what the day's news events are going to be. Uh, sometimes I can plan ahead, sometimes I can't, but, uh, but invariably he'll say something, he'll tweet something, uh, one of his staff members will say or do something that will throw the entire news cycle on its head. Uh, some days I feel like I can leave at 4 o'clock, other days I think I'm going to be leaving at 5 and I stay there till 10. So it's, uh, it's been an exhausting 100 days and I think it's, it's tried, tried the patience and the nerves of a lot of political reporters, but I mean it's been, I mean, no matter what you think of it, it's been an incredible story to cover. And you said you just finished filing a story on kind of the 100 day milestone in the future, so what's the future? Well, uh, it depends on, on the subject, uh, but the, the future is uncertain. <laughs> we don't know. Because he hasn't had any legislative accomplishments to speak of yet. I mean, there's been some rolling back uh, regulations. Uh, there's been uh, a, a few healthcare clinics that he's named uh, and a couple of post offices. But other than that, there's been very few laws he's he's signed. So the question is, where is he actually going to break through and get some lasting legislative accomplishments done? Healthcare is a possibility. Taxes. They just released their one-page tax plan, which is. <laughs> very vague that actually misidentified uh, the Secretary of the Treasury as the Secretary of Commerce uh, Mnuchin in the heading of the, the, of the press release. Uh, and, uh, and, and then I think immigration, there's going to be ongoing legal battles. I mean, we're not done with that yet. The Ninth Circuit is going to hear uh, the challenge to his second immigration ban. 
Uh, there's also now the, uh, the crackdown on sanctuary cities. That's going to be determined in the courts. Um, you know, we have floating out there on the horizon, maybe something about infrastructure, uh, infrastructure spending, uh, maybe something about childcare, the, the plan that he floated, uh, thanks to Ivanka, his daughter, for, uh, for tax credits for childcare and family care. Uh, that hasn't been acted on yet. Uh, there's a lot of possibilities, but right now I think the very next step, at least in Congress, has to be healthcare reform because if they don't get past that, it makes tax reform a lot harder. It's also something that they've campaigned on for seven plus years. So if they can't get that crossed off their list one way or another, uh, they're going to have a very kind of uh, distraught base when they try to run for re-election. Members of Congress try to run for re-election in 2018. So uh, there's still a lot. And, and 100 days, as, as uh, we discussed, is not, it's kind of an artificial metric. I mean, if people had 12 fingers, then we'd be talking about 144 days. That's, uh, you know, if the, the sun moved a little slower, the earth moved a little slower around the sun, you know, we'd have a little more time for, for presidents to accomplish in their four years. So it's all kind of artificial, but it's important because Donald Trump watches the media, and the media likes to have these kind of anniversaries and these, these, uh, these uh, significant milestones. So we have a president who is obsessed with the media, is obsessed with his perception within the media, so if the media is focusing on 100 days and his accomplishments, then he's focusing on it. He wants to get things done. And so that's why you've seen a lot of pressure in the past week and a half to come up with a tax plan to try to get one more vote on health care. Uh, it's, it's because I mean, Donald Trump, and this isn't new, this has been the way Donald Trump has operated his entire career, is that he collects press clippings and he reads them. Uh, my previous job, I was uh, an editor for syndicated columns. And columnist I edited who was a nobody, just a minor blip in the, uh, he had maybe two newspapers he was in. He wrote something about Donald Trump's hair. And a, a month later, he got a copy of his column printed out with a handwritten note from Donald Trump saying that his hair was real, signed Donald Trump. When are we talking? This was 2000, uh, 2011. And, and he was he managed to track that down. Not only did he manage to get that press clipping that maybe appeared in one paper and online on, on the Creator Syndicate website, but he had it printed out and he, he took the time to write a note to this columnist uh, who, uh, who lived in Dallas. And, uh, and so now I imagine it's framed on his wall. I mean, that's a, that's a collector's item, but I mean, it's remarkable how, so his, his attention, and if you talk to the New York tabloid reporters and the people who covered him as a real estate developer and a, celebrity in New York, they'll say the same thing, that he would call them up, that he would, he would berate them when they gave him negative coverage and would applaud uh, them when, uh, when, he gave them uh, when they gave him positive coverage. So that's the way he operates. But when you think about his supporters, I'm, I, kind of, I can imagine a lot of his supporters hearing this 100-day and, oh, he hasn't really accomplished many of the things he said, and, and some of them just thinking, well, there's the, you know, the, there's the media just setting up this artificial construct just so they can you know, find things to criticize about the president. Right, and, and I think that they didn't vote for Donald Trump because of his health care plan or because of his tax plan, which he unveiled a tax plan that was entirely different from the tax plan they just rolled out uh, this week. I mean, they had someone come in and write a tax plan for him. He campaigned on it. This one, you know, it's still kind of traditional Republican tax plan, but it was it did different things. Uh, 
they didn't vote for him be, even even because of you know maybe what he was saying about specific trade deals or anything like that. They voted for him because of his attitude and because of the way he talked and the way the establishment, media, political, everything like that was so so turned on their head when he spoke that he that he riled them that he he turned his fire on them, whether it's the Republicans or Hillary Clinton or the media. They wanted someone who would come to Washington and basically effectively, rhetorically, give the middle finger to everyone there. And he's done that as president. I mean, I mean, if, if that's a, like a check mark, we're going to go down and, and check mark his accomplishments. Uh, he has uh, been served as president the same way he campaigned. He hasn't changed his style. He hasn't changed his like shoot from the hip tweets uh, or his off the cuff remarks. And it, you know, he, he gave one speech to Congress that was kind of traditionally presidential, but in his day in, day out operations, I mean, the man who campaigned is the man who's president. And I, I spent two years covering him in the campaign, and I, I, I can, you know, I, I, more fingers than I have, the number of times people were predicting that Donald Trump was going to pivot. That he was, you know, now that he's, he's built up a base of support, uh, he is in the lead to get the nomination, now he's going to start acting seriously because now he's being taken serious as a candidate. And he didn't do that. He'd give one speech and then the next week he'd tweet something out. About and, being wiretapped. Uh, uh, yeah, well, about, about anything. But this is during the campaign. Oh, uh, gotcha. and, and, he, and then he sealed the Republican nomination. And everyone thought, well, okay, now he's going to stop talking about immigration the way he had been. He's going to be very serious and he's going to you know, pivot to the general election, a kinder, gentler Trump. I actually wrote that one time now. Uh, but. And obviously that didn't happen. Then it was like, oh, well, now it's the convention, this big convention speech he's going to give. This will be his chance to, to put a, a softer side, the general election side. And he got up there during his acceptance speech at the Republican convention and painted a dark picture of, of the country and, and spewed venom. And it was, a, it was you know, if, if uh, Reagan was morning in America, that speech was midnight in America. I remember... I was I was standing up in the rafters uh, covering it and on air and and I was my jaw hit the ground. It was not the kind of speech I was expecting at all. I mean, he came up there and gave a a stem winder just like his his stump speeches where it was all darkness and things are horrible and maybe a little bit of ray of light at the end. Like you know, it was an hour long speech, 50 minutes of this nation is going to hell in a handbasket, uh, five minutes of it can get better, and then five minutes of thank you and waving to the crowd. Uh, so that didn't happen. Then we got to the general election. It was like, okay, now he's going he's to pivot in the general election. He's campaigning now. He's going to have to change. Didn't happen. Didn't happen during the debates. He won. The night of the election, he gave a, a rather magnanimous speech, actually. I don't think he really had a chance to prepare it. No one, no one expected that to, him to win. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, and so he, you know, he gave like a reference to Lincoln's better angels. And, and so it was, it was actually a, a fairly... Uh, fairly magnanimous speech, and people were like, "This is the pivot." And then, no. And then we got to, you know, the transition, continuing to do his thing. And then inauguration is inauguration speech. I don't know if you all remember the, the the press clippings beforehand about, well, this is his his chance to unite the country and 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 bring everyone together. And he gave his American carnage speech. You know, the the blood on the streets of the country thing, where it was like, "Look at all these people behind me. They're the establishment." They've, uh, they've been you know, drinking their wine and laughing it up while everyone's been suffering. I mean, you could see, you could look at the audience of all the members of Congress, all the, the politicians behind him, and you know, their faces turned white when he gave that speech. Uh, so long story short, uh, he is, people have been predicting a Donald Trump pivot for two years. 
and it's not going to happen. What we, what we have seen uh, over the course of his campaign and what we've seen in the first 100 days of his presidency uh, is what we're going to get for the next 1,360 days of his presidency. <laughs> so you have to Sorry. The future. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's talk about immigration for a moment mm -hmm. because you did talk about that as, you know, um, something that he can count as an accomplishment, even though things are tied up in the courts. I mean, people's lives have been affected already by his immigration policies. Right. If you only focus on the court cases and, and, and those two immigration orders, you're missing a much bigger picture as far as Donald Trump's immigration policy goes. Because presidents, even though he overstepped his bounds with, with these immigration orders, at least they found some judges that said he overstepped his bounds, in part because of the rhetoric that he'd been using, as people had been using during the campaign, saying they were going to have a Muslim ban, and, and then interpreting this as just another extension of that. But beyond that, and he, presidents have a lot of power to set immigration policy, and he's been doing it outside of just that executive order. It's been enforcement uh, under the Obama administration. Immigration enforcement happened primarily along the border, uh, not across the country. That's changed. Now he's given a directive to uh, to the Homeland Security Department, to immigration officials, that immigration, uh, illegal immigration is going to be enforced across the country. So it could happen as much if you, in Iowa as in Arizona or, you know, California, Northern California as along the border. Uh, and then you also see a rethinking of legal immigration. And we haven't gotten that flushed out yet, but there's already been talk about changing, say, H-1B visas, which are visas that are given to, uh, to skilled immigrants who come over to fill jobs that, uh, that they find uh, the American job market is not able to, to sustain. And for a BBC audience, that has, that has been a particular interest because a lot of these H-1B visas come from Indians who are coming across to work in the technology sector. And all of a sudden, there are a lot of uh, Indians who, who thought they were going to come here and work in, in the tech sector who are now rethinking coming here. And, and you've actually, uh, as I think we discussed earlier today, I've seen a drop in in applications to American universities, particularly from Indian students uh, and then Indians coming over here to work. So uh, I will say that there's definitely a lot of authority just granted by the laws, uh, congressional laws, vested in a president to set immigration policy, to set enforcement policy. Uh, and Donald Trump is using that much in the same way that Obama tried to use it the other way to say, well, we're not going to uh, deport nonviolent uh, offenders. We're not going uh, to try to deport people who, who have family here. We're going to def defer deportations to people who came over when they were children but don't have, don't have valid uh, immigration papers. Uh, now you see the flip side of that, the ability of a president to turn it around and say, we're going to try to deport everyone and we're going to try to get uh, immigration officials to, whenever possible, process uh, people who brush with the legal system, or even not necessarily are, are have a conviction, but they have an arrest. Just any sort of interaction with, with law enforcement that puts them on a fast track to be deported. There's not the same sort of long proceedings that go on. So uh, yeah, you're seeing a, a sea change in immigration, and it goes much farther than, than just the high profile court cases. Um, and uh, Seattle is, has declared itself a sanctuary city, and King County also mm -hmm. a, a sanctuary. Um, and I know that that court uh, 
it's on hold in the courts again, but is that issue just not really ripe yet? Do you still see that as we are going to have a more direct kind of interaction between these sanctuary cities and the federal government in terms of funding once things advance a little farther? Yeah, I mean, just looking at that, that court decision, uh, I mean, there, there are things that the president can do, things that are in the law that, that the president can do to take away funds from sanctuary cities or, or have some, some way of, of uh, punishing sanctuary cities. What the, the Trump administration was trying to do was trying to broaden that out and find ways to take other funding that wasn't necessarily directly addressed uh, to, to deny sanctuary cities, cities that weren't cooperating with immigration officials. And the logic for these cities is that we don't want to force the uh, illegal immigrant community into the shadows. We want them to feel like they can call the police if there's a crime. Or we want them to, to go to uh, seek, medical, seek medical services rather than have a population that does not get any kind of medical care where you know you could have diseases spreading you could have uh, you know serious health consequences for for society at large we want them to we don't want to have a permanent uneducated underclass of undocumented workers uh, in this country we want to bring them out into to the light but it, it's actually kind of an irony uh, in when the trump administration was looking at ways to punish cities that did this uh, conservatives uh, use that same sort of argument uh, against Obama when it came to health care because they said, well, you can't punish states for not accepting uh, Medicaid expansion. So now you see the flip side of that where there are people suing the federal government saying, well, states should be able to make decisions on their own. You can't punish them by withholding funds because they are not cooperating in the way that you would like them to uh, for, for enforcement of immigration. So. Uh, I don't think they're done yet. I think they'll 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 challenge they'll they'll fight it in the courts. But that that one district court decision was uh, pretty remarkable in saying that it was a a uh, the part of it that was already set forth in law was fine and, and there's nothing you can do about that. But everything else is kind of uh, just mere speculation. They have no authority to to pursue that. So we'll see we'll see where it goes next. I mean, I imagine it'll be in the Ninth Circuit, which will make Trump happy. Uh, he already thinks it's in the Ninth Circuit, so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Really. He's already condemning the Ninth Circuit, even though that wasn't a Ninth Circuit decision. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, those, those decisions will, I think, eventually, at this point now, filter up to the Supreme Court, uh, where there is a conservative majority. But it'll, I'll be interested to see if, if, that, if the conservative justices on the Supreme Court are, uh, are as interested in, in giving kind of this broad you know, federal power uh, to Trump that, uh, that he seems to want, or you know, if, they, if they have concerns about you know, central government overstretch the way they had in the past with uh, Democratic presidents. Um, and you talked about, speaking of the Supreme Court, that that's another area where the, the 100 days have seen a, you know, a successful nomination. Right, and, and Kellyanne Conway was bragging about uh, the last president to, have, uh, to make a Supreme Court nominee in his first uh, 100 days to have a court justice confirmed. It was like in the 1890s or 1880s, which is a ridiculous thing because, I mean, just, you know, Supreme Court seats don't open. You don't never know when they're going to open up. So it's not, it's not something that you can say is a, is a huge accomplishment because it's basically putting a name on a piece of paper and handing it to the, the Senate. Uh, that was much more a Mitch McConnell accomplishment because he uh, defied tradition uh, over the course of the past year by not uh, not having any kind of hearings on Merrick Garland when when Obama put that nomination forth in March of 2016 and then changing the rules on the filibuster uh, that had been in place for 50 years to allow a straight up and down vote uh, on on Gorsuch. Uh, so I mean that was that was Mitch McConnell and the Republicans of the Senate doing the heavy lift. Uh, 
Now, I will say that, that Donald Trump made the Supreme Court a campaign issue, and, and he, I think he helped make a lot of conservatives comfortable with his presidency by promising that, that he was going to appoint one of this list of 20 uh, justices uh, or judges, proposed judges, uh, when he became uh, president. And that was, I think, one of the reasons why uh, evangelical voters stuck with, uh, with Donald Trump and the Republican Party when it came down to it voting on, uh, on election day. They looked at that Supreme Court vacancy. They knew that it was Antonin Scalia's seat, that, that the, the ideological makeup of the court was at stake. Uh, they knew that Hillary Clinton was going to appoint someone they didn't like. Uh, they hoped Donald Trump would appoint someone that they were okay with. Uh, and that alone was a, a huge reason why, why when you look at the number of evangelicals, a percentage of evangelical voters who voted for Donald Trump, it was higher than voted for Mitt Romney in 2012. Despite everything you know about Mitt Romney and everything you know about Donald Trump and their, their personal backgrounds and, uh, and, and whether they represent, say, what you would say is traditional family values and evangelical values, they rallied behind Donald Trump. And I think you know, that Supreme Court seat, and just talking to people, I heard that as well, that abortion was an issue, a Supreme Court seat was an issue, that, that made them willing to, to take the plunge, either hold their nose or otherwise, and, uh, and, and vote for Donald Trump. And, and they look at it as a, a promise fulfilled. I mean, they, they, got, they got the man they wanted. Gorsuch is, uh, is the kind of Supreme Court justice that, uh, that they would have picked. And in fact, you know, they essentially did pick. Um, and so you talked about the process of people kind of you know, deciding which candidate to support during the election. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, people seem kind of dug in. I mean, polls show that his supporters are, you know, are happy with him at the 100-day mark. So, um, you know, you have, you know, journalists off doing stories about ethical conflicts and different mm -hmm. things, but it doesn't really, it just feels like people are kind of in their trenches and people who hear the ethics stories who don't like Trump say, see, and then the people mm -hmm. who like him say, you know, it kind of runs off them because they like the tone he's setting. Right. I mean, when, is there going to be a certain point in the presidency where you think people will be a little bit more open to persuasion, or are, are people just going to be sort of dug in? Yeah, I mean, that's a big question. It, it's, uh, you know, if you wait for, I think Donald Trump is going to, as long as Donald Trump keeps being Donald Trump and even you know, leads, as, serves as president as, a, uh, as a, a thorn in the side of the establishment and continues to pit himself against Washington and the media writ large, I think that his base of support, are, and they're going to stick by him. Uh, now, there's always speculation that, well, if he, if he doesn't follow through with his promises or if he passes legislation, that's a huge tax cut for the rich and, uh, and, uh, and signs health care legislation that does away with guaranteed health care for, for the type of white working class voters who, uh, who supported him that somehow they would abandon him. I've seen no indication that that's anywhere close to happening uh, at this point. Uh, I think that... Republicans in Congress are in much greater risk <laughs> of, of having either, uh, you know, turnout be such uh, that, that Democrats and, and liberal voters show up in much larger numbers than, than evangelicals or conservative voters in 2018 and that they take it on the chin. I mean, that's kind of traditionally what happens anyway, regardless of, of uh, you know, Donald Trump as a, as a unique politician. But in midterm elections, when your, your party has power, generally the pendulum swings back and uh, and you see a, a wave election the other way. I mean, you saw it with Obama in 2010 and 2014. You saw it with, uh, 
George W. Bush in 2006, not in 2002, but that was a, a weird sort of a, a wartime election right after September 11th. But you saw it with Bill Clinton definitely in, in 94. Uh, so, I mean, they're, they're nervous, and I think you're seeing that kind of play out in, in Capitol Hill politics where a lot of the moderates in particular are the ones who are dragging their feet on health care legislation. They're probably going to drag their feet on some of these tax reforms that are being proposed. They're worried about about losing their jobs, but uh, but uh, Donald Trump, his supporters are still there, and I don't think they're they're going anywhere. Um, so, how would you help us get prepared for round two of looking at healthcare uh, healthcare bill? Do you think much has changed in this version, and mm -hmm. what we'll see play out? Are the chances different now? Well, you know, the the latest version of it uh, is is basically taking those hard choices about well, do you scrap some of the guaranteed benefits, do you change uh, some of the way the insurance system is structured that, uh, that covers pre-existing condition, uh, pre conditions or, or guaranteed health benefit, guaranteed coverage of say maternity care or cancer care or anything like that. They're taking all of that and saying, okay, well, we'll give the states the flexibility to decide as long as they show that they can continue to provide uh, coverage for people who have, uh, have pre-existing conditions. So they're kicking it all to the states and letting the states do the heavy lifting so they can say, you know, check mark, we, we uh, repealed and replaced Obamacare. Uh, the conservatives, uh, the House Freedom Caucus, which are the ones who were originally kind of the organized opposition that sank the first, the first bill, they seem to have signed off on that. Uh, the moderates, the, this, this uh, Tuesday uh, morning group, uh, that, uh, that are the ones who are particularly at risk of a, a wave election, uh, they still seem very reluctant to get on board, whether enough of them get on board just from being browbeat uh, and, and, and feeling like they have, to, they have to toe the line and not be that one or two deciding votes that sinks it. Uh, that's another question. But, uh, but the way they've structured it now is, is very much, let's just get it out of the, however we can, get it out of the House, let the Senate deal with it. The Senate could totally change it. In fact, the Senate, if they do eventually get it, will totally change it because uh, whatever makes it out of the House is not going to be uh, acceptable to them as far as changing uh, Medicaid benefits and, uh, and, and things like that. And then if the Senate changes it, they'll have to be voted on by both houses and, uh, and that could get derailed then. So, I mean, I always looked at that first vote in the House and I thought that it was going to pass in the House. Uh, that first version, I thought they were going to find a way because the House is usually the, the chamber that marches in lockstep. The, the, the Speaker of the House has a lot of power to punish people who don't toe the line. Uh, I thought they were going to get it through and then it was going to get derailed in the Senate. It, they didn't get it through the House and, and part of the reason is because so many people abandoned it that he couldn't single out certain people for, for pressure to, to push it over the line. There were about 30 votes short and when they got reached, uh, reached that point it was uh, an impossibility. But this new version, if they get the House Freedom Caucus on board, they get within you know, a single digit number of votes, I think they can, they can push it over the line. and. Uh, and then it'll be the Senate's, Senate's uh, problem, <laughs> which yeah. they will be happy with, I'm sure. We have two Republicans to watch in Washington State, right? Because there's Jamie Herrera Butler is, and uh, Dave Reichert are mm -hmm. both moderates who were really in the hot seat on the last one. Mm -hmm. So it'll be interesting to see what they do this time around. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm curious, I want to ask you about uh, writing for the BBC audience versus mm -hmm. an American audience. And I'm just curious, how many people here have been overseas since the election and faced you know, questions from people as you're traveling about you know, what's happening in your politics? So, mm -hmm. um, 
Yeah, what's it like writing for that audience? And are they curious about different things, do you think, than, like you mentioned, the, the H-1B visas and those kinds of things? Yeah, uh, I mean, writing for the, you know, a, a global audience and a British audience in particular, uh, it was a challenge in the beginning to explain the Donald Trump phenomenon to them. They were you know, flabbergasted that someone like him could have gotten as much traction as he did when he came out with his Muslim ban uh, announcement press release uh, in December of 2015, I mean, that was a, a shock to them that a president could campaign on barring an entire religion <laughs> from, from entering the US. Uh, British, the British audience, uh, they were puzzled. They got a lot less puzzled after the Brexit vote. <laughs> All of a sudden, they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, I understand that now. And to the point where uh, in, the, in the final month of the campaign, I was getting uh, calls and emails from Brit saying, this feels just like Brexit. This is, you know, Trump's going to win, isn't he? And, and I would say, oh, you no, know, blue wall, uh, you know, the, the Electoral College, uh, Hillary Clinton's still up in the polls. And, uh, and they're like, no, no, it's, it, 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 he's going to win. And, and so I had to field quite a few emails on election night and the next day with, uh, I told you so, and <laughs> you, you know, we, we warned you. Uh, and, and it did turn out just like that. But, uh, but it, it's funny talking to, you know, we have a, a wide variety of people from, from different countries come through the BBC Bureau. Uh, we have a, uh, an Arab and Persian language department within the Bureau. So we have reporters who are focused on Iran. And, uh, and, uh, and the uh, Arabian world. Uh, and, uh, and they will tell me that this seems a lot more like third world politics. Like they, uh, I had an Iranian reporter compare Trump to Ahmadinejad, who was kind of a populist, was running on uh, anti-foreigner, uh, uh, pro-Iranian nationalism. Uh, the Italian reporters, actually, they were the ones who I think got it first also because they, they dealt with Berlusconi and there was a similar sort of a, a, a cult of personality and a, a, you know, a media figure coming into politics, parachuting into politics and, and turning the system on its head. I've, I've heard a lot of Latin American reporters say this seems like a, a lot kind of like Latin American uh, politics. Uh, which Chavez, is, some yeah, analysis of that. Exactly. So, uh, so yeah, but, but, you know, Traditional European uh, political reporters, I think, were were pretty baffled by what happened as well. Uh, so it's been interesting, and it's been there has been a voracious appetite for for Donald Trump coverage. There was during the campaign, and it's been even more so since he was elected, because all of a sudden then it didn't become just kind of like a funny American sideshow. Uh, this was you know someone who had you know, become president who was going to set foreign policy for the world's most powerful country. And you know, then it was, you know, what is, is he really going to do what he said? How is he going to change things? Is he really going to abandon NATO? Because he had campaigned on that. Is he really going to uh, support uh, Japan getting nuclear weapons, which is another thing he kind of said off the cuff at one point? Uh, is he really going to uh, enact uh, protectionist uh, trade measures, pull out of NAFTA, all these things? I mean, they, they wanted to know, you know what was real and what wasn't. And, uh, and I, I wish I could, <laughs> could give them a straight answer on that. Uh, but it's, uh, part of it is that there are different factions within the White House all trying to do their own thing. And, uh, and it depends which one is on, on the particular upswing at what point in time to know what sort of policy is going to come out of it. I mean, you can, you can definitely see the, the White House statements that were written by the, uh, 
the Steve Bannon, Steve Miller portion of the White House and, and which ones uh, uh, were, were written by the Rance Priebus, more traditional Republican, or the Jared Kushner, kind of uh, the New York crowd as, as uh, they were derogatively termed by, uh, by some within the White House, the kind of the more moderate, uh, moderate type of uh, Republicans or even some Democrats uh, who, are, who are in, in the White House. So it's, uh, it's been fascinating just watching it all go down. <laughs> How has your office adapted to the kind of the pace of the news and kind of the idea that you know, on one hand you need, you know, you're gonna cover like a Sean Spicer apology, mm -hmm. but you're also covering these, tracking these big issues. And mm -hmm. I see pleas from people on Twitter where they say, please journalists, keep your eyes on Russia or keep your eyes on ethics. Don't mm -hmm. get you know, blown off on this latest yeah. kerfuffle. So how, how has your organization you know, kind of manage that. Yeah, and that's been a real challenge because there always is some new story that pops up during the day that you're not predicting that will, you know, whether it's uh, you know Sean Spicer uh, saying something about Hitler and uh, and Bashar al-Assad, uh, and, uh, and 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 just having that become not only you know a, a story that that everyone's talking about, but a story that everyone wants to read. And so you know that if you go and cover that, it is going to do gangbusters as far as you know, clicks on your website or, you know, eyeballs uh, or ears on your, your radio program. Uh, and, and it is. You have to try to carve out time to cover the big stories and try to put it all in perspective. Particularly, you know, for us, we try to think about what a global audience would want to, to hear about. They may not, uh, they, they may take a kind of an idle, casual interest in some of the, the little scandals and day-to-day and -day stuff, but, uh, but they really want to know, you know, about immigration policy. and. Know, trade policy and and uh, what's going on with North Korea or what you know uh, U.S. relations with Russia or uh, uh, that that stuff they have to you know we have to present to them and and so it's kind of a mix of you give them the, the candy that's very clickable and then you give them the, the the vegetables which are important stuff that you need to have out there uh, and, uh, and and balance it but there have been there have been articles I've spent a lot of time researching and really gone in depth on and, and interviewed dozens of people uh, taking me weeks to produce uh, and uh, that'll get a, a small amount of attention and some clicks and it's like oh you know well job well done and then I'll write something in half an hour on whatever the latest Trump controversy is and a million people will read it within the space of a few hours so it's a uh, it, it's a challenge to not get pulled towards just giving giving candy all the time and uh, and, and having a uh, and, and feeling good about it because you got a lot of clicks or a lot of people replied to your tweet uh, and, and because you know modern journalism gives you that instant feedback uh, on things that an audience likes and you know very early on what's what's doing well and what's getting getting uh, attention and what's what's getting you attention and so uh, you know that is that is a, 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 a temptation that is very difficult for, for most journalists, me included, to resist. Well, I'd love for you to mention, you know, some stories that you've done that you, you know, you think do deserve, you know, mm -hmm. more public attention. I'm sure people here will kind of try to keep an eye. <laughs> so something to think about, maybe even if you can't answer right at this moment. Well, I, I wrote a, I wrote a series of articles on immigrant communities and their uh, and how they were integrating into politics uh, on the local level in particular because. Uh, you know, immigration and, uh, and, and immigrant communities were such a kind of a big picture focus of the election. Uh, I went to some, uh, some communities, the Armenian community in Los Angeles and Glendale, uh, the Bosnian community in St. Louis, and, and talked to them about what it was like you know, 
trying to get involved in politics, particularly in a climate where immigrants were, a political climate where immigration and, uh, and immigrants were being uh, vilified on a national level. And, and it was a, a fascinating piece. The Armenians were a much older immigrant community. They actually had multiple waves of immigrants come through in, in, uh, in California. So they, I, was, I followed around a guy who was running for a state assembly race uh, and how he was dealing with, with kind of the anti-Armenian uh, sentiment within the community. And it was the fascinating thing with the Armenians were that they had just been kind of happy to get along. It was when, and even they elected an Armenian governor, Duke Magian, uh, in the 1980s, but it's when they started running in the local races, that's when the, the anti-Armenian sentiment started coming out. It was fine to, for them to live in the community and have, have shops and things, but when they started running for city council, uh, started to dominate the local city council, started to run for assembly seats, that's when you saw kind of the, the, the prejudice uh, within the community start to rear its head. And then the Bosnians in St. Louis, that was actually an immigration success story, a, a Muslim immigration success story. These were refugees who came over after the, uh, the Yugoslav Civil War. They, a lot of them uh, were brought, they were settled all over the place, but then St. Louis uh, developed a, a vibrant Bosnian community. They settled a, a part of town that had been abandoned, had had high crime, they all, the, the real estate value was low, so they bought their they developed their own community there with their own newspaper and their own, uh, their own shops and stores where you could buy Bosnian treats. And then Bosnians moved from all over the country. They would come and they would settle elsewhere, but then they would, the second generation or the second move, they would all come in uh, and, and they are a, uh, a very vibrant, important part of the St. Louis community. Uh, and, and it's interesting because they, uh, they're now watching Syrian immigration come in and, and other Muslim immigrants come into St. Louis uh, that look a lot more like Muslims, I guess. The Bosnians, because they were European, because they were white, they were able to integrate. But now they have this kind of a front row seat to anti-Islamic prejudice within the, the, the St. Louis community. Uh, and they're trying to debate whether to, uh, whether, you know, how they can speak out. How can, they, how can they support the refugees the way they were supported uh, when they first came over. So. Yeah, those are a couple of stories that were really great and didn't didn't do well at all, and uh, uh, and yet you know I mean they were kind of interesting I think you know informative pieces. <laughs> Sounds like a great look at our country. You yeah, know, and the yeah. Opportunities. Um, how is it going with? Uh, we hear that um, a lot of the appointments haven't gotten underway yet mm -hmm. in the Trump administration. That undersecretaries and people like that mm -hmm. um, that need Senate confirmation haven't happened yet. So as a journalist, do you find that there's you know? A shortage of people to call, even in some of the agencies, or do you do you see that? At yeah, all? I mean, it's you talk to the, the bureaucrats who have been there a long time, uh, the ones underneath the political appointments, uh, and they will tell you off the record how horrible things are in, in their mind, or how good things are, depending. But uh, generally, the bureaucracy in D.C. is scared. Uh, they're they're uh, in places like the State Department, in particular, they feel totally alienated uh, and isolated from the administration. Uh, I mean, State Department officials, traditional, you know, career State Department employees have been ignored by by the administration, cut out of foreign policy apparatus. Uh, EPA is another one where they feel like you know their life's work is being undone before their eyes. Uh, I mean, there are other there are other places, Homeland Security, probably uh, immigration enforcement, where they feel like finally they're being given a voice. Uh, but I think where the and what's happened is that that we just had our last cabinet secretary. Uh, Acosta, uh, who's the labor uh, 
Labor Secretary. He was just confirmed today. So we, now he has his cabinet put together, but it's all the stuff underneath it. Like I said, the, the deputy, uh, under, uh, deputy uh, secretaries, undersecretaries, ambassadors, there are barely any ambassadors uh, out there in, uh, in the field yet, which is, is uh, you know, a struggle for our global audience as well, because the ambassadors are the face of the American government in these, all these countries. Uh, but what it does is it, it affects the day-to-day -day operation of these agencies. They're unable to, to move the machinery of government the way they're used to. And, uh, and it makes it a lot harder to just roll out policies and implement policies. I think that if you listen to Steve Bannon, and he said this, and Donald Trump has echoed it, is that part of the reason they don't want to fill these, or they're in no rush to fill these, because uh, their goal is to kind of under, undermine the operation of a lot of these agencies. So if you don't have anyone you know, in, the, in the upper echelons of, say, the State Department, or HUD, or the, uh, the Energy Department, there's no one to advocate for those departments in the budgetary process. Uh, so it's a lot easier to cut budgets from agencies that have no one you know, raising their hand and fighting tooth and nail and talking to members of Congress and, and lobbying for their particular fiefdoms. Uh, and so you know, as this budgetary process for 2018 rolls out, uh, there's going to be a lot easier for the administration to to just drastically cut some of these some of these agencies and departments, where it would be different if they were fully staffed and had a full operation that could advocate for for their efforts. Uh, so, you know, from from a political reporter's standpoint, uh, yeah, it's you, you can still get information from from them, but from an operational standpoint of just government running, uh, you know, the the Trump administration has either intentionally or not uh, tied their hands as far as what government can do. And it, it's going to hamper them on things like trade negotiation, where they don't have, they don't even have a, a trade representative yet. I mean, they've got a nominee, but, uh, but they don't have a trade representative, a trade staff that can, that can help them negotiate. It's Jared Kushner on the phone with, uh, with uh, you know, uh, Pena Nieto and, and, uh, and Justin yeah. Trudeau. And yeah, every, everyone. <laughs> he's a, he's a one-man State Department. I mean, and, and that, that's not a joke. I mean, he literally is, is like, you know, fulfilling the role of Secretary of State and, uh, and uh, you know the the upper management of the State Department and handling all of these different things. I mean, it's 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 remarkable how centralized right now foreign policy is in the White House, which uh, which means that uh, that there's not the same kind of constrictions and and uh, and awareness of of how the pieces fit together. So you can see a lot of kind of crazy things like you know mixed signals on where a U.S. carrier battle fleet is going. Uh, I mean, that was a case study in, in you know, not having, having a uh, unified message and the infrastructure there to, to put together a unified message and, and make sure that you know, something like that, which a lot of countries watch very closely, including our allies, uh, have, it, have it, there be a lot of confusion around that. But let, me, let me see before we get to audience questions. Uh, one more thing, because uh, part of of what we're seeing you know, as, as Donald Trump's presidency was, was uh, set up by the campaign and the way he campaigned as an outsider. I wrote a piece right before the, uh, the, the first debate uh, where I, I described how Hillary Clinton was campaigning. She was campaigning as a lawyer. She was a lawyer. That's her background. Very cautious, very controlled, not trying to go out on a limb on anything. Everything vetted very carefully, but like no, no passion, no emotion, no attempt uh, to, 
to you know, really sell her policies. While Donald Trump was campaigning as a salesman, uh, which is what he is, I mean, a real estate developer, real estate salesman, but he was campaigning as a, a salesman who only had to make one sale. Like you only had to sell, sell the car once. If you're a career salesman, and I actually got, got some emails from salesmen saying, how dare you, you, you uh, besmirch our, our profession by, by comparing Donald Trump to them. Uh, but the point I tried to make, and maybe I didn't make it well, was that if you're a career salesman, if you're a car salesman, you're not trying to just sell one car for that day. You have a reputation uh, that you have to uh, represent. You don't want, you want to be able to sell a car to that family, you know, the kids and the, the relatives, to their friends, I mean, word of mouth. It's important, your reputation, you're, you're making a, a profession, a career out of it, like a politician would make a career out of being a politician. Uh, Donald Trump was coming in to make one sale. He, was, he, hadn't, he didn't have a record of, of having to sell his product, of his political product before that, to have to back up his promises uh, and show that he could implement them. He just had to sell his, his candidacy to, that, uh, to the audience, to the market, one time. Uh, and so, like a man who was selling a car one time, it didn't matter what he promised. He was like, you know, can the car be a submarine? Sure, if you drive it in the water, it'll, it'll turn into a submarine. You put wings on it, it'll fly. You can make all these promises because it's the one time you're making a sale. And so now he sold that car and, and he's having to, to now you know, drive it around, drive it off a lot and show that it's doing everything that he promised. Uh, and it puts him in a rather difficult position. That's part of the reason why you see you know, all this kind of uh, muddled mess because he made all these different promises. And he didn't really think about you know, what saying that I'm going to label China a currency manipulator uh, would do when he got into office and actually had to try to fulfill that promise, or I'm going to repeal Obamacare on day one. He didn't really think that through because for him, he was just trying to, to make the sale that one time. Uh, so it, it's, it's put him in a very interesting position and, uh, and, and now you see him and his administration, in effect, try to, try to back up all these promises he made, and a lot of them are contradictory or very much impossible to try to, to get done the way he said they would. So, all right, anyway, that, that's... And yet, <laughs> no, not much buyer's remorse yet. Not yet, so. no. I mean, I think you, know, you see his poll numbers in the, in the low 40s, which is historically low for a new president, but, uh, but that, was, that was the electorate that, that Won, uh, won the presidency for him, and they're sticking by him so far. So uh, you know, we'll, we'll project it out over the next three years and see what happens, and see what happens in the midterm elections even before, before he's up for office. But there's still a long, a long amount of time left in his presidency, and, uh, and a lot of things can happen uh, to the economy, to, uh, to foreign policy, to, uh, to uh, the, the impact of legislation that may or may not get passed by Congress. And, uh, and, and so, you know, this far out, uh, everyone, you know, four years ago, this far out, everyone was measuring the drapes for Hillary Clinton. I mean, I've, I'm the bureau chief, uh, what was that? Someone, someone in the BBC. Uh, uh, we were having a planning meeting in early 2015, or no, it was even, it was, 2000, it was late 2014, uh, and we were talking about BBC coverage, uh, and, uh, and this person said, uh, well, we're not really going to cover the primaries uh, because everyone knows it's going to be Jeb Bush against Hillary Clinton, uh, and we'll start paying attention in the uh, in the later uh, the later stretch of the the general election campaign. Is 
that uh, quote like framed on the wall? No, and I don't bring it up. I, I, no one tell anyone I said that here. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it just shows like you know you you try to project things that far out and. Uh, and it's nearly impossible. I mean, there's, there's no way of telling what's going to happen. And, uh, and so people are saying, well, Donald Trump's clearly going to be a one-term president because he's got historically low approval ratings now. You can't say that. And, uh, and it, a lot of it, I think, will depend on who the Democrats uh, pick and uh, what happens with the economy and, uh, and where it all goes from here. But it's, uh, you know, it, it's, you know, you can kind of see where the presidency is, he is headed based on the first 100 days, and, and you, you can pretty much know that the Donald Trump is, you know, that we have now is going to be the Donald Trump the way uh, for the rest of the, the time he's in the presidency, but you don't know how the public's going to react to that. You don't know uh, how you know, the, the macro picture is going to be, what, what the economy is going to be like, what, uh, you know, what, uh, what foreign policy crisis first tests him. I mean, no, I don't think anyone would have predicted that he would have launched missiles at Syria. I mean, that, he gave no indication of being, being you know, predisposed towards launching a military strike on a country because of a violation of the norms of international law. I mean, you would say just the opposite, but, uh, but here we are. <laughs> how do we want to do questions? We'll get... Okay, great. You've commented about how reactive he is to the media. Is there any responsibility on the part of the media's way they interact with him so that they're not goading him to a point where he's taking actions that he might not have otherwise taken just to get back at mm -hmm. the media and react to the media himself? Are we putting him in some sort of death spiral that way? Yeah, I mean, I think that he goads the media as much as the media goads him. And, and uh, I'll, I'll answer this two ways. First of all, the, the way the media covers Donald Trump, I, yes, I've heard lots of people and, and friends and relatives tell me, it's like, don't cover that stuff of him, or don't cover him, don't give him the, the microphone the way you do because you're just, you know, you're, you're helping him say things that aren't true or, or advance policy goals that, uh, that are, are wrong, uh, and, and don't let him do that. And you can, it's very easy to say that and say, okay, well, we won't cover that, but if, if you know, the BBC doesn't cover whatever the latest scandal of the day or whatever the latest hubbub of the day, everyone else will. And it's almost like a, a game theory, kind of prisoner's dilemma thing. Unless everyone decides to take a step back and say, okay, we're not going to report on something he said that's clearly untrue because there are things that he says that are, and Sean Spicer says, that are, are clearly, uh, clearly misrepresenting the facts. I'll put it that way. Uh, but, but unless everyone steps back and doesn't cover it that way, then, uh, then you, know, you put yourself at a competitive disadvantage. And, and not only that, but you seem totally out of touch with whatever the subject of the day is. Uh, now the media also, when Donald Trump does things like attack the media and, and goads the media, uh, that is a very effective way of Donald Trump getting the media to talk about something that is, is fair, good terrain for him because the media loves talking about itself and they love talking about the First Amendment and the free press and how important it is. His supporters will look at him bashing the media and love it because they agree with everything he says. Uh, there's uh, 30% of the country that will think that the media navel-gazing is totally ridiculous and they don't care about it or they just ignore it. And, and as long as the media is talking about themselves and not talking about whatever the important issues are, whether it's a, a substantive policy issue or a scandal that deserves closer investigation, uh, you know, then they don't care one way or the other. And then there's people who pay attention to the media who are very involved in in First Amendment rights, we're very involved in the policy issues and see media bashing as uh, an affront to, to 
democracy, uh, but they were never going to be on Donald Trump's side to begin with. Uh, so you know, I, I think that Donald Trump, when he goes after the media in, in tweets or comments and, and saying fake news and, uh, and saying that the New York Times is, a, is, a, uh, is un-American, I think that that politically is a, uh, a benefit for him and that it plays into what he wants to do. So. You know, it's a, it, it is a challenge. He's a, he's a challenging politician and challenging president to cover because of, because of that. Thank you for your wonderful insights, and I hope I can articulate this question well. But um, some of the information about the role of Russian intervention in the election has come from British intelligence. Mm -hmm. And um, some of it reads like a spy novel. And uh, there was a fellow, I think the Guardian or the Observer, there was a fellow just walking down the street and saw Nigel Farage going into the Ecuadorian embassy and right. meeting with Julian Assange. And I think uh, the first information to James Comey about Russian intervention came from British intelligence. So I have two questions. One, can you give us your insights on that? Um, and two, is the investigation on intervention going to be in-depth and real? Mm -hmm. uh, I'll, I'll, I'll put in a plug for one of our correspondents, Paul Wood, who has broken uh, a lot of those stories. Yeah, he was uh, one of the first people to report about uh, the ongoing FBI intelligence service investigation into people close to uh, Donald Trump uh, in his in his circle that that got picked up across uh, uh, across a variety of media after that and, and has been confirmed since by James Comey in congressional testimony uh, and uh, yeah uh, they, uh, there's a former MI6 uh, employee Steele I forget his first name but. Uh, but he was the one who, who composed that dossier that was uh, presented to the intelligence services uh, and, and became a foundation for some of their uh, uh, government surveillance requests for, for Russian banks and, uh, and, and even, I guess, one of, one of, uh, one of the associates close to, uh, to Donald Trump. Uh, but uh, do I think it's going to go anywhere? I mean, it's... I think that the congressional investigations is going to be a challenge because it, it's increasingly clear that in both the Senate and the House, uh, partisanship is, uh, is going to rear its head and, and prevent some sort of uh, you know, wider uh, look into the matter. And there's going to be testimony, but I think you'll see the testimony uh, be rife with, with partisan questioning on both sides, the way you saw the, the House testimony. when when Comey showed up and the way that uh, the Republicans were intent on asking about, uh, about intelligence leaks uh, and, uh, and the Democrats were much more interested in asking about, uh, about Russian meddling in the election. Uh, the thing to watch is the FBI and, and their investigation and they're doing their own thing and they're working in their own timeline and, uh, and you could very well see something come out of that. I think that uh, given James Comey's testimony uh, where he showed up and said it's an ongoing investigation, I can't comment on it, uh, you know, we, but, uh, but that it's, it's just in its early stages. All those things were kind of indications that they have a real 
a real um, subject that they're digging their, their teeth into, and, uh, and they're going to follow it wherever it goes. So uh, uh, you know, whether, it, whether it becomes a major political headache for Donald Trump or not is, is an open question, but, uh, but there's enough, enough kind of smoke around the subject that, uh, that you've got to think that uh, people like Paul Manafort uh, are, probably should be concerned with where, uh, where this investigation goes. Yeah, um, I, I guess the defining moment of the campaign was uh, to give a construct was when uh, he stood before many, many audiences and yelled, lock her up. And it seems as if he emulated Putin in that uh, way of uh, wanting to govern. And so, uh, again, I'm going to uh, carry on with this Russian theme. And the question, you didn't bring it up in your conversation until the question was asked. Um, if, in fact, uh, it comes out that he did have ties and uh, there was direct intervention, that's treason. And uh, given the fact that this would be, be put before the American people, and given the possibility that uh, Congress and the senators would not be elected in this next election because uh, they support him, do you foresee the possibility of impeachment? Because the only way Donald Trump is going to leave office is through impeachment or becoming lame duck by uh, uh, the Repu Republicans losing congressional and Senate seats in the next election, and that election will decide the uh, the Senate and the Congress uh, and who leads them. Yeah, I, that, that obviously is, is so many steps down the road. Uh, but I think you know before you even talk about impeachment, you have to the way Congress is currently composed with the Republican majorities in both in both the House and the Senate. You would have to look and see whether there is any indication of of Republican office holders feeling like uh, they were better off turning on Donald Trump than sticking with him, and because so many of them are, you know, much more concerned about Donald Trump's uh, core base of support voting against them in the primaries, they're not going to do anything to to undermine that. Uh, now, if you saw some sort of massive revelation that showed that Donald Trump himself uh, had ties to Russia. Uh, or was uh, was coordinating their campaign with with Russian uh, Russian hackers or officials? Then then that could change the dynamic. Uh, but I mean, we're so far from anything concrete coming out that uh, that that it's at, at this point, uh, you know, you're just speculating on on uh, on you know, multiple steps down the road. I will say that you know what we've seen and what seems fairly. Uh, Fairly concrete is that, and that the intelligence services believe this, and they put this out in the in the memo that was released uh, earlier this year, is that there is evidence that Russian propaganda outlets were doing their best to to uh, undermine Hillary Clinton and uh, and boost Donald Trump. Uh, sources like uh, RT, Russia Today, were were uh, and Sputnik were putting out stories that were were based on hacks by Russian. Russian hackers that have been released that were derogatory to Hillary Clinton, uh, and uh, and that it, it seems very likely that it was a foreign policy goal of uh, of the Russian government to try to undermine Hillary Clinton, uh, whether that was because they wanted to elect Donald Trump or they wanted to weaken Hillary Clinton uh, as president. I mean, you, that just goes to you know you have to speculate about their, their motivations, but uh, I think it's pretty clear that Vladimir Putin didn't like Hillary Clinton personally. That he held her responsible and, and Democrats responsible for some of the demonstrations that took place in Russia 
when he was running for the presidency, some of the stuff that happened in Ukraine and other uh, former Russian republics uh, undermining their support, the, the Russian-backed uh, Russian leaders in those countries. Uh, and so, you know, it, you could very well say that, well, you know, he was, he was getting his revenge and doing what he thought uh, that, that the U.S. had done to him during, uh, during his election. Um, now, you know, when you think about it, I mean, you know, Russian media has, has traditionally, and Soviet media at the time, was, was never really taken at face value. So, you know, did a lot of American voters look at articles in Russia today and think, I'm not going to support Hillary Clinton because they're releasing these articles that are very uh, derogatory of, of her. Um, you know, it's hard to look at it and say, well, all those Russia Today articles tipped the election to Donald Trump. Was there a voter in, in Pennsylvania, a blue-collar voter in Pennsylvania, who, uh, who read you know, stories based on, on Russian news services and said, well, you know, now I'm definitely voting for Donald Trump? Or can you say, well, Donald Trump tapped into an anti-establishment surge in this country, uh, a, a feeling of dis, dis, uh, disaffection within the working class, uh, perhaps a resentment towards Barack Obama's presidency, or resentment towards Hillary Clinton as a traditional face of the establishment Democratic Party, and that's why Donald Trump won. Uh, personally, I think that probably contributed significantly more towards his victory than, uh, than what, uh, what Russian media outlets were doing, or, uh, or even, even the hack emails uh, did. Uh, I mean, it contributed, I'm sure. I mean, it didn't help Hillary Clinton to have have her convention undermined by those uh, rather tawdry emails being circulated uh, from the Democratic National Committee, and it didn't help that her campaign chair had had his emails basically spilled out in front of public view for over the, the entire course of the campaign. But there were bigger bigger trends at, at issue, I think. Um, question back there. Um, what do you think Donald Trump's role so far has been in? either helping or hurting the credibility of the United States as a world power? Mm -hmm. um, and how do you think other le world leaders are viewing him? I, I think that uh, you know, they're trying to figure him out. And they're trying to try to figure out what to take seriously and what to take literally, kind of the way the American public and, and the media did during the course of the campaign. Uh, I think there are, there are foreign leaders who who are probably happy with with uh, with Donald Trump? I think Benjamin Netanyahu is very happy with uh, with with Donald Trump. I think you're, it's interesting to see someone like uh, Angela Merkel of Germany uh, trying to gauge the man. And, and what she did was invite Ivanka Trump to a forum in Berlin, uh, which I think she's come to the conclusion that the way to back channel to Donald Trump is to to uh, communicate through. Through his daughter, which may not be all that uh, that that uh, foolish a, a thing to to assume based on on the way Donald Trump operates, uh, but I think there's a lot of confusion, a lot of uncertainty, uh, both among allies and adversaries. And uh, you know, Donald Trump came into office with almost no foreign policy establishment behind him, and the traditional conservative foreign policy establishment. Uh, was dead set against Donald Trump for a large part. I mean, there were hundreds of career uh, conservative foreign policy luminaries 
who signed a letter saying anyone but Trump or we support Hillary Clinton because we think that he's you know, a, a threat to national security. And since Donald Trump took office, a lot of those people have been blackballed from taking jobs within the Trump administration. Elliot Cohen, who is a, a longtime uh, kind of a foreign policy uh, uh, luminary among, among conservative circles, was floated as an, a, a uh, uh, deputy or undersecretary of state, and he was shot down reportedly by the Trump inner circle because he was against Donald Trump when he was a candidate. Uh, and and I, you, you've seen reports of that across the board where, where uh, you know, so Donald Trump is running foreign policy kind of without any sort of apparatus beneath him. We discussed that, that before. And so what it's done is it's, you've had a foreign policy that has been kind of random and difficult to predict, uh, where the, the president could get on the phone with the prime minister of Australia and, and get into a, a shouting match with him and apparently hang up on him, according to the reports, because of something that, if there had been an apparatus behind, would have been, he would have been prepared for, would have been smoothed over, and there would have been a script that he stuck to rather than just pick up the phone and, and talk. Now, there's another line of thought that, well, maybe this is actually an effective way of conducting a foreign policy where uh, it's this, uh, this madman, Nixonian madman theory of foreign policy where you have someone who is so unpredictable that you don't know if he's going to do something crazy, so you better, better not make him, make him angry and you better not try to cross him. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll see how that plays out. <laughs> and uh, and I, you know, it's suddenly it's getting tested in, in uh, North Korean relations, whether you know, is Donald Trump really going to try to bomb North Korea and does China really want to test him to see if you know, he'll do that and maybe China will be a little bit more keen to putting pressure on North Korea because they don't want to be put in a, a position where you know, Donald Trump decides to order some sort of a strike on Kim Jong-un and their military program, their nuclear program. And, uh, and because of that irrationality or the fear of irrationality in the foreign policy, that uh, it's something that, they can, uh, that changes, changes the way the U.S. is perceived for the better. But, uh, uh, it's 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 definitely a big unknown, and uh, and a lot of uh, you know you see all these foreign leaders coming to Washington and having meetings with Donald Trump, and I think a lot of that's because they don't know where they stand right now, and they need to get some face time because they know that's how Donald Trump operates, and they want to try to to pin him down and and get some certainty in in foreign policy and, and foreign relations. Hi, thank you. My question's very quick, but tonight we all seem to say we don't know how Donald Trump got elected. I'd just like to ask you if you think it has anything to do with the United Citizens United decision and corporations being able to funnel so much money to elections and big donors with the Republicans. And mm -hmm. Second part to that is how do the Europeans feel about that decision? Mm -hmm. uh, I'll answer the second part first because I've you know talking to to Brits and having covered the UK general election in 2015 and, and covering the Canadian election also in, in 2015. Uh, I mean, campaigns and elections are entirely different kind of things uh, in in Europe and in Canada. They're much smaller, much more restrained. I mean, I'm, I remember covering uh, uh, covering uh, UKIP and Nigel Farage, and they had a billboard unveiling, and that was this big thing. They unveiled a billboard. <laughs> 
Uh, and I mean, it's almost quaint how, how the, you know, the lack of production. I mean, campaigns here are like big corporations, and they're run like you know, billion-dollar enterprises where uh, in Europe, you know, the, the actual campaign is, is, is circumscribed to such a small amount of time, and the amount of money is so much smaller. I saw a campaign commercial on television in the UK, and it was just like once, where it was wall-to-wall -wall here, in, at least in, in swing states. So it's... Uh, it, 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 it's, they're puzzled by the way we do our politics, and they're overwhelmed by the production values and the scope of it. And I tell, I tell Europeans, yeah, I spent the last two years covering the presidential campaign, and they look at me like I'm, I, I've gone mad. Uh, but it's, uh, so it's, it's you know, they're, they're puzzled by that. And it, I would say Citizens United has, has definitely flooded money into, uh, into US politics. But it's hard to look at this election and say, oh yeah, it was big money that, that, that tilted it in Donald Trump's favor because during the primaries, Donald Trump was outspent hand over fist. I mean, Jeb Bush had $100 million that he poured into his primary campaign and it didn't get him past South Carolina. I, big money was, was arrayed against Donald Trump. Uh, you know, Ted Cruz had this elaborate campaign infrastructure with all of this, uh, this analytics that he used to determine where he was going to spend money and, and how he was going to do it. And he had tons of money from the Mercer family and other people in these independent political action committees. And that didn't do him a way to good. You know, he, uh, he still, he still you know, finished a distant second place. Donald Trump didn't spend a lot of money. I mean, he spent maybe $40 million on the, on the primary campaign. Uh, and didn't have a lot of outside money going in, and yet he, he won. And, uh, and it just goes to show you it was a message and a lot of the free media that he capitalized on that, that did it for him. And Hillary Clinton outspent Donald Trump, and, and you know, she had a, a ton of money and a ton of investment in the ground game and was on air, and, and, and that, didn't, that didn't help her beat Donald Trump. I mean, Donald Trump did have outside expenditures uh, that... that helped him in swing states, and he also had a ground game that was put together by the Republican National Committee. So even though he didn't have any kind of a ground game, and that was something we looked at the time, it was like, how is he going to be able to get people to turn out to vote? And is either people turn out to vote because they were engaged and excited about voting for him, uh, or uh, part of it was that uh, Rance Priebus had put together a rather elaborate Republican National Committee ground game that was able to turn out voters in places uh, like Pennsylvania. But I'll I'll tell you, I, was, I covered the, the Nevada caucuses, and, uh, and that was considered, well, maybe Marco Rubio would do well, because that was after, uh, after Iowa, where Donald Trump didn't do all that well, and then New Hampshire, where he did quite well, and South Carolina, where he did quite well. Uh, so people were looking, it's like, well, maybe we, they can stop him in Nevada, and it's not quite as friendly terrain for Donald Trump, and Marco Rubio, Rubio is kind of from there, and they have evangelicals and a lot of Mormon voters. He may not do that well. And I was at a caucus site in, in Las Vegas, and I watched them line up around the block and around the corner. And you could, you know, I, I hate to profile, but you could, you could see that these were Donald Trump voters. These were not the type of people who traditionally show up to caucus for Republican candidates. I mean, there were people, you know, people motorcycle gangs, where there, and people had red, white, and blue scars, and, and, uh, and housewives, and, uh, and, and you know, people who were, who were just kind of blue-collar workers who, who didn't look like traditional Republican voters, but they were showing up. Uh, and that's what, 
got Donald Trump the, the nomination was, was the turnout, the people who were coming out to, to vote him who may be conservative voters, may vote in the general election, but don't vote in primary. They started to show up, and then that's what powered him to what was it, it, you know, a very narrow win in the general election, but, but in key, key Midwestern states was enough to put him over the top. So I, I think Citizens United has definitely changed the role of money in politics. Uh, and it has changed a lot in, in other races, maybe in 2016, and in Senate races and places like that. But uh, I would be hard-pressed to look at Donald Trump's victory and say it was because of, of, of the, a money advantage. I have a question about the, the way the BBC approaches its news in America. And, and specifically, you know, I'm a keen follower of the BBC website. Mm -hmm. Why is it here, and what's it trying to do? What's its mission? It seems largely focused at American audiences mm -hmm. and has its own advertising campaign and its own kind of editorial policy. I'm glad it's here, but what is the thinking behind the BBC website here? Oh. Well, I mean, if, if you go to the BBC website from the US, it looks different than if you go to the BBC website from the UK or from uh, somewhere else in the world. So it is a, a website that is, is targeted towards an American audience. and you know, we know that we're not the first choice, uh, you know, the, the go-to for, for the, the first bit of news for a lot of, uh, a lot of viewers, but we're, people come to us for foreign news, they come to us for an outsider perspective on American news, they come to us for stories that aren't told by the American media. Uh, but the, the U.S. audience is huge for us, and it's, uh, it's uh, a growing market for us. I mean, I'll, I can defer to Heather, wherever she is, uh, to, <laughs> to tell you a little bit more about the, the business model. But I mean, we, we, you know, we have a, a commercial audience here that is, is big, and we, uh, we, we definitely uh, feel like covering the United States is important, not just to you know, an American audience, which is, is sizable, but also a global audience. And so if we're going to cover it for the world, we'll cover it for America. And, uh, and so, uh, I mean, I appreciate the opportunity the BBC has given me as an American to, to explain U.S. politics to the world, but also to write about American politics without the same sort of uh, restrictions that maybe if I worked for something, someone like CNN or the, the Washington Post or New York Times has because uh, I can operate a little more freely than uh, Washington Post that has a huge bureau where they have you know, a handful of people dedicated each campaign. I was able to kind of bounce around and take a much bigger perspective. I didn't have to cover the day-to-day -day, uh, machinations of the election, but I could kind of look for trends and, uh, and cover the big story and go from a Hillary Clinton to Donald Trump to Ted Cruz to whoever and be able to tie connections between them all in a way that was different from someone who was immersed in just one campaign. Um, what I find talking to people locally is that people are in a phase of like intense news addiction. You know, <laughs> they're just reading a ton of news and uh, they want to get more detail than they've ever had before. So I've talked to people who say they read The Hill, which is, you know, something I would have thought was like pretty, you know, mm -hmm. close, detail-oriented, not necessarily something that everyone across the country is going to read for coverage right. of Congress and things. So I'm just curious, do you have any recommendations for, uh, you know, media that we may not have be familiar with that you say is doing really good coverage right now? Mm -hmm. uh, well, I mean, outlets that I turn to on, on a day-in, day-out basis, like uh, websites like Slate, uh, Talking Points Memo, uh, 
Skip Good uh, kind of liberal perspective on, uh, on it. The Federalist is a very good conservative website, uh, conservative com commentary. David Harsanier, I used to edit him, and, uh, and he is a, a very keen uh, uh, conservative viewpoint uh, on things. Even the National Review is, is, is useful. I mean, Politico, I, mean, I, I think it's got a, a national reach now, but for the day in, day out, inside baseball kind of politics stuff, they're very useful. The Washington Post and New York Times have huge uh, resources that they dedicate towards uh, political coverage. Um, so, I, you know, and, and even you know, the Guardian, you know, our, uh, or the UK, they have people who are on the beat uh, covering U.S. politics and, and have some really interesting things to say about about U.S. politics. Uh, uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's uh, it, it has the, the one thing the web has done is is put a lot of different resources uh, at, at your fingertips and, uh, and. Some of it real. Yeah, so and, and social media, you know, it, it, I, I find that if I go on Twitter and I start, you know, reading my feed, I can just disappear down a rabbit hole and, and get immersed in story after story and, uh, mm -hmm. uh, and, and it will, you'll, you'll never come up for air if you, if you don't, if you're not careful. I always recommend On the Media, if people have heard that on our air, it's produced out of WNYC and it gives, I think, really good analysis to some of the kind of hot topics of the mm -hmm. past week. So that's my recommendation if people are looking for, uh, for more resources. Uh, so a couple more questions maybe, right here, and then to you. After Donald Trump was elected before he was inaugurated, uh, he received a phone call from the president of Taiwan. Mm -hmm. That make a lot of news back then, but there's nothing follow up. He didn't make any other gesture to Taiwan. So I personally like to think that maybe Taiwan pay him a couple million dollars just to take the call. <laughs> I wonder does the press have any uh, insight on that matter? I remember when that, that came out, and people were puzzled because he did, I mean, you know, that's something that has to be handled very delicately and has been handled very delicately by the you know, U.S. foreign policy establishment for decades, going back to, you know, uh, Richard Nixon, and to, to field a call uh, from the, the president of, of Taiwan without any kind of preparation or, you know, apparent, you know, having anyone from the State Department or any kind of foreign policy people in on it. Uh, that, that was a, a huge risk. And then I think it came out that Bob Dole had ties to, uh, to you know, Taiwan, Taiwan, Taiwanese interests, and, uh, and that he set up the phone call. Uh, but now since then, uh, it seems like, it, like, as you mentioned, they have totally backed away from that. Uh, Donald Trump came out and, and, uh, and endorsed, I believe, well, one China uh, policy uh, subsequently. and and, uh, and so, I mean, those early days where he was effectively fielding, fielding calls from foreign leaders without any sort of a script or any sort of preparation, I mean, that's, uh, that was in incredibly risky from, from a U.S. foreign policy standpoint because you don't know what he's going to say and you don't know what kind of, uh, what impressions he's going to give. And, and people were, at, at that point in time in particular, people were looking very closely at what he was saying uh, to try to get some sort of an idea of, of how he was going to govern, and, and you know, as I mentioned, what sort of what sort of campaign promises and rhetoric he was going to try to implement uh, as president. So, uh, so now it seems like it, it's funny. I mean, Chinese policy now seems a lot more 
normalized than it was during the campaign. I mean, China was a, uh, a, a, a target of him on the campaign stump time and time again. Uh, he said he was going to serve Big Macs for, uh, for you know, the Chinese when they came for the first state visit. And, uh, and instead, he, uh, he hosts this, uh, this you know, uh, full you know, formal event in Mar-a-Lago with uh, you know, uh, China and uh, white tablecloths and everything, much different sort of, uh, of a setup. And he's backed away from, from any sort of uh, uh, trade war with China, at least so far, any sort of accusations of currency manipulation. Says he wants to be a partner with China and North Korea and tie in economic relations with foreign policy objectives. He's pivoting. I mean, yeah, I mean, that, that's all the kind of stuff that you would expect to hear from any kind of uh, a president. So, I mean... I mean, if you want to take a, uh, a, a kind of a cynical, worst-case view of, of this, uh, Donald Trump tends to pick on the little guy. Uh, and, and so he's perfectly happy to pick a fight with, say, Mexico or, uh, or you know, Canada or Australia. But when faced with an adversary that, uh, that can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with him, he's much more careful. Uh, I mean, that would be, like, you could call that the bully theory of, of Donald Trump's politics, is that, uh, that you know, Rosie O'Donnell is easy to pick on, but, uh, but someone who can fight back, uh, he, he will avoid. All right, last question, I'm sorry. Since the inauguration and up till today, the 98th day of the Trump presidency, what's the best joke you've heard from a British colleague? <laughs> oh, gosh. I, uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I will have to. I, I'm going to have to give you some, give that some thought and, uh, and come back to, to you on that. But I mean, they uh, they definitely they, they see they they see the whole thing as kind of it was it was amusing at first, and then it was a drama, and it ended in tragedy. So I mean, it was it was kind of like the, the full the full gamut of emotions uh, for them from from the get go. But I'll have to think about that. Well, um, I really appreciate everyone coming out tonight. It's been really great. I've learned so much from you. So thank you, Anthony, and thank you for everyone for being here. Oh, thank, thank you. Read my stuff on the, on the BBC website and uh, follow me on Twitter. I, I try to be irreverent and not too, not too serious on Twitter. So I haven't gotten myself in trouble for that yet. But. Great, great. <laughs> Journalists, they measure themselves by the number of Twitter followers they have. Thanks for streaming this episode of Speakers Forum from KUOW 94.9 Seattle, featuring a conversation with BBC reporter Anthony Zerker. He spoke with KUOW reporter Amy Radel on April 27th at the Russell Investment Center in Seattle. The event was hosted by the World Affairs Council. Thanks again to Sonia Harris for our recording. Tune in again soon. <laughs>